Hey investors, on today's episode, I want to talk about a subject that can be a little touchy and there's definitely some division within people on this topic, but I wanted to talk about rent control. Specifically, I want to talk about rent control and what the actual data and history tells us the impacts are on investors and tenants. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, managing partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income producing apartment buildings. I've researched rent control quite a bit and the most recent and in my opinion, most credible source, which is one I'll be citing over the next few minutes, is from the Urban Institute, which I'll also link in the show notes so you can check those out. That's from 2019. Now, people who have studied economics really understand that there are always unintended consequences for government intervention in free markets. I mean, several studies, again, in that Urban Institute study, which I'll link in the show notes, have cited that rent control restricts supply of quality housing essentially in two ways. First, by disincentivizing new investment in the community, and second, by disincentivizing existing landlords in that community to create competitive living conditions, meaning surrounding properties are harmed by the low upkeep, maybe by low motivation of landlords to increase value of properties because they can't really increase rents beyond a certain point. So what that means is if you have a community of, let's say, all B-class assets, and some of those assets start to slip into C-class assets because landlords just feel like they're not getting a return on investment there, Eventually, that's going to bring the other neighboring properties down and essentially have kind of the opposite effect of rent control, where now you could take those communities and essentially degrade the quality of the living there. Now, rent control really has two main goals. First, to prevent tenants from being evicted, from being unable to afford rising rent costs, which can be really burdensome in some communities. But second, also allow landlords to get enough income to support the property and make a living. It's a common misconception that rent control just means you cannot increase rents. That's typically not the case. You can usually increase rents, sometimes even in some areas of New York, as high as 7% per year. Now, that sounds like a lot, but you have to consider that these could be areas experiencing 14% or 18% rent increase, and now a landlord is restricted to just 7%. Some newer rent control laws that we're seeing in the Twin Cities also allows for either 3% increase or 1.5% over inflation, whichever is greater. So there's still room to increase rents. There's just a little bit of restriction as to how much you can do it. Now, I don't want to get into what could be or should be. I would rather reference data and history to see what the true impacts of rent control have really been. Now, it's common to understand that rent-controlled units benefit the tenants, and we know this because tenants living in rent-controlled units stay longer, which also helps landlords in a way because, as we know, being in the residential investment space, they can see in turnover costs are some of the largest ongoing costs that we incur. Now, depending on how far these units are from market rent and how much you're able to increase rents based on market rates or based on market rent increases, This could be beneficial or harmful or maybe even a wash to a landlord's bottom line as they're saving costs on turnovers and vacancies. But here's what's interesting about how rent control laws impact surrounding areas. Now, again, I'm citing a study that was in the Urban Institute study, which I'll link in the show notes. But a study in 2018 
concluded that San Francisco's 1994 rent control laws were directly responsible for a 5.1% citywide increase in rents. Now, interestingly enough, this represented a $2.9 billion cost shared by residents, which perfectly offsets the $2.9 billion cost of benefits that tenants and rent-controlled units receive, meaning essentially there was a wash in benefit versus additional costs for the community as a whole. Now, there have been studies in smaller towns that didn't find a direct correlation like this, but the study done in San Francisco, from what I could see, was the largest one and the most popular one done. Now, another point in this study that I want to discuss is who from the tenant side is actually benefiting from rent control. One study found that tenants in the bottom fourth of income levels only occupied 26% of rent-controlled units, while tenants in the top half of income levels occupied 30% of rent-controlled units, meaning there isn't really a true way to make sure rent-controlled units are actually being leveraged by those who need it most. These are some of the key points that I want to point out in rent control. I mean, we really do understand there's a lot of different economic views, unintended consequences, what it does to investments, how investments or possibly even trickle down economics works. All those things are totally up in the air and really subject to somebody's individual views. But these two things about the San Francisco study, the wash and rents, and who really occupies rent controlled units are really, really solid facts that we can use to form how we feel about rent control units. If you have any studies on rent control, I'd love to reach out and get some of those studies from you and sharpen our pencil on the topic. Send me an email through my email below. Send those studies my way. I'd love to look into them and have an open discussion about that. Thanks so much for listening to our episode, and we hope to see you next time.